following episode is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. In this episode, hermaphrodite dwarves with piles of cocaine strapped to their tiny heads. Why the hell would that even happen? And why isn't it happening more often? Yeah, it's that kind of ride today. What do these cocaine-toting hermaphrodite dwarves do, and why are they doing it in this book? I guess you'll just have to stick around and find out, won't you? Countdown for blastoff. X minus five, four, three, two, X minus one, fire. I decided to do an episode about a man who's burning through the sky, yeah, 200 degrees, that's why they call him Mr. Fahrenheit. He was traveling at the speed of light, and he's gonna make a supersonic man out of you until he died. He also inspired countless musicians, singers, artists, and mustache growers everywhere. A man so talented, he wrote his way into history, rock and roll style. And he did it high as a kite and fucking everything in sight. And yes, that rhymed. Then, when it all seemed like it couldn't get any better, dead. Fucking dead. Death by a shitty, ruthless disease. Goes to show that nature doesn't give a shit about anything cool, man. And doesn't recognize tireless ambition, talent, or that you're what many consider to be the greatest rock and roll singer Ever. It just laughs, calls it stupid, and tells your whole life to fuck itself. Oi, enough of that, then. Oh, right. Sorry. Listener, if you don't get what just happened, I suggest listening to the episode Christmas with Ed Sullivan to understand that. It was a little throwback. Anyway, so who is this dead mystery super singer? None other than Roland Gift, famed singer for the band Fine Young Cannibals. Of course, she drives me crazy like no one else. She drives me crazy and I can't help myself. <laughs> that was sorry. That was terrible for so many reasons. I'm sorry I put you through that. I apologize. It's not about rolling gift, no. Uh, he's not even dead. He's very much alive and married, I think. And he doesn't even have a mustache. The guy we're talking about, all mustache. Famous mustache. 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 That was a good band, though, Fine Young Cannibals. It's a shame they broke up. I still can't hear the song Good Thing. Good Thing. Without thinking of HBO previews from the 90s. I was a shut-in. Hello. And welcome to Elton Reed's Book a Week, the last podcast you'll ever listen to. But for the next podcast that you'll listen to. And Roland Gift, I'm sorry to you and your fans. This episode isn't about you. No. My name is Elton, and I read a book a week. The book this time around is Somebody to Love, The Life, Death, and Legacy of Freddie Mercury, a biography of the famed singer and turned professional ice cream taster Frederick R. Mercury Jr., whose nickname was Freddie Conelicker. That's interesting. Fun fact, Freddie Ruprecht, Mercury's first job, nude model for a gas station. 
Yeah, apparently the town he was from was very lenient on how businesses could advertise. The gig was something about every full tank gets a windmill. Only, okay, now get this. There were no windmills. See? You see, there were, there were no It sounds like there would be, given the advertisement. But, you know, it, it, instead it was a, okay, let me describe what the windmill actually was. Okay, he pulled down his pants and, and wait, what? What? Wait, did you? Did you think this was going to be about Freddie Mercury, the singer of the British rock band Queen? <laughs> Seriously? There's look, there's more there's more than one Freddie Mercury in the world. You know you know that, right? I mean, <laughs> I mean, how embarrassing for you. Look, such a short-sighted view of names. I mean, you you should apologize to every other Freddie Mercury in the world right now. Go on. Go on. I wait. Wouldn't it be funny if that were true? Like that dick swinging. <sighs> no, no. Um, the book is about the is about the world famous singer songwriter and all around rock star legend Freddie Mercury. Of course, the entirety of world history plainly shows that there are no, nor ever will be, any other Freddie Mercury's ever. Period. Before we get into this book, I want to thank you for choosing this podcast over the murder podcast you could have. If you enjoy this episode, please consider contributing and be part of its production. You can contribute via Patreon and this podcast, Anchor.fm page. The links are uh, in the description. Thanks again. If you're strapped for cash flow, though, as I am, and uh, you want to contribute in other ways, you can do that by sharing this with a friend and following the podcast on all the socials, media, and giving it a rating and review on your favorite podcast provider. It only takes a minute or two and helps raise this podcast profile to let other people find it. Thank you for any and all that you do. Now, the book, Somebody to Love, The Life, Death, and Legacy of Freddie Mercury. The title is one of the longest to ever describe one goddamn thing ever. While also being the same as the song Somebody to Love, though the song title isn't that long. The song title Somebody to Love was written by Freddie Mercury and performed by Queen. Seriously, there are 11 words in this book's title. Why? It should be simple. Freddie Mercury on the cover with two words. Fred's dead. Boom. Done. No, no. No, I'll do you one better. Freddie on the cover. The words Fred's dead from fucking. Why you know why am I not working at Random House or Simon and Schuster? Where 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 did I also? By the way, uh, "Somebody to Love" is one of my favorite Queen songs. Seriously, a song the book says was written with Aretha Franklin in mind. We had the same three people singing on the big choir section, explained Freddie Mercury. But I think it had a different kind of technical approach because it it was a gospel way of singing which was uh, different to us. That track was going a bit mad. I just wanted to write something in the Aretha Franklin kind of mode. I was inspired by the gospel approach she had on her earlier albums. That song is something like a 160-piece choir effect. You can imagine how long it took to do it, over and over and over again. We spent a week on that, but it was worth it. I never want to look back on one of our albums and think, if only we'd spent longer and done that, it would have been even better. Somebody to Love was released as a single on the 12th of November, 1976 and raced to number two in the UK singles charts and number 13 in the U.S. Billboard Hot 100, going on to sell 
2 million copies worldwide. 2 million! That's a fuck ton of records. All vinyl, too. No CDs or shitty invisible downloads. Imagine how much of the environment that killed with all that vinyl. Uh, I mean, actually, probably not as much as you think. I mean, true, most vinyl records involve the use of fossil fuels, chemicals, and energy, but they typically endure for decades, with vinyl LPs being cherished and bequeathed and resold. They rarely end up in landfills, and their inherent value means that unsold new records are often melted down and reused. That little bit there was from an engineering and technology website talking about the dark side of vinyl. This book... Uh, Somebody to Love was written by two guys, Matt Richards and Mark Langthorne, who, um, by the way, do not want to be talked about. How do I know this? Uh, Their professional bios and any information I could find on them, uh, severely lacking in anything of interest. Seriously. This is all I could find on Matt Richards, because as evidenced by many investigations before it, Uh, Authors bury their pasts deeper than reformed hookers turn nuns, I swear to Christ. After attending the University of Westminster Film School, Matt Richards raised the budget to follow explorer Michael Turner on an expedition to Senegal and the Cape Verde Islands and made a short film about his efforts to document the landing places of Sir Francis Drake. For those listeners who are unfamiliar with who Sir Francis Drake is, uh, he was a famous English slave trader known for four things. He thought King Philip II and Spain were both shit. He was a privateer-slash-pirate that took shit from Spanish ships. He sailed around the world circumventing that shit. And he was buried at sea in full armor in a lead coffin. Why? Because he literally died of the shits. Dysentery. Ha ha. It's a shitty way to go. The end. This film Matt Richards made was so well received that the BBC commissioned him to complete the film, which included a voyage to Panama to locate and raise good old dead Sir Francis Drake's coffin. Did that happen? No. The subsequent film called In Drake's Wake was shown on BBC Two. His next film was The Gold Plane, again for the BBC Two. Narrated by John Nettles, this 50-minute film followed the quest to prove that a plane crash in 1944 was the work of sabotage to prevent the secrets of D-Day from being revealed to General Charles de Gaulle. De Gaulle. Anyway, there's an airport named after him. (laughs) Anyway, to prevent secrets from uh, D-Day from being revealed in Algiers. Since then... Matt has made several historical documentaries, shows, short films, and such, winning numerous awards for lots of them. Just look at all this boring shit, this boring shit for a guy that wrote a book. Look, all I could find was his fucking resume, which is semi-interesting some of the time, boring as shit most of the time. Case in point, he made a documentary miniseries about the International Brigade and its role in the Spanish Civil War, which was a major collaboration between British and Spanish producers and broadcasters. Which is, wait, let me check my notes here. Oh, it is in fact neato, according to Who Cares from the makers of Don't Give a Shit. So there you go. God! He, of course, is an author or co-author, I should say, along with Mark Langthorne, 
of the books 83 Minutes, The Doctor, The Damage, and The Shocking Death of Michael Jackson. Fuck, these titles are so long. And, and he wrote this book, Somebody to Love, The Life, Death, and Legacy of Freddie Mercury. So he's done a lot of work in film and a lot of award-winning work uh, and wrote uh, slash co-wrote a lot of, like I said, this this was his resume. It's all I could find. Fucking authors, man. Now, Mark Langthorne, he's a different story altogether. A wealth of information is available about this guy. Take, for instance, he's the CEO of Roland Moret. Moret? Moret which is both a French fashion designer and a company, I think. He's also managed artists, such as Annie Lennox. Um, she's amazing, actually. I like her a lot. Um, he's managed Mark, Tainted Love Almond, and Kanye, whoop de scoop de poop West Kardashian. From reading this book, it's clear he leaned on his clients or previous clients uh, to fill out a, a quota. Quote, quota. Oh, and Mark went to... Thirst Grammar School, and Thirst Comprehensive for Educational Leadership and Administration General. Both of those are uh, British schools. Um, I'm assuming, as uh, they have complicated names for what uh, are apparently lower-tier schools, I'm not clear on how the British school system works or functions according to their names. I mean, you can likely call a place Comprehensive Extra Educationism General Academy and get accredited degrees in shoe tying and Dog shit retrieval, I imagine. I really have no idea. Regarding the fine educational opportunities he had at the aforementioned institutions, Mark said, School was not for me. On the rare occasion I actually went, I learnt nothing. Every day I see people in front of me with qualifications and all the right answers, but it counts for very little. And that's... That's all I could find. Resumes, awards, and bagging on education. Good God, for any current or future authors out there, look, can you make up an interesting fucking bio? I mean, let people get to know you. You know, let them in. And for God's sakes, don't write books while also shitting on getting an education. Nothing promotes readership of your book like telling your audience they're better off not reading things like your book. Fucking hell. Now, before we crack open this rock and roll urn and sift through Freddie Mercury, I'd like to give you a little disclaimer about what I talk about from this point on and offer a little clarity on my personal views regarding homosexuality. Um, people are people. Gay, straight, bi, tri, whatever. It's all beautiful. Look, you're born the way you're born, and that's that. Be happy. More power to you. Just be kind to those around you, and if you can, be polite. The more, the better. And, uh, let someone else go first from time to time. That's, you know, that's basically it. Now, I say that to let you know that if I do say something that that's offensive, I don't mean it to be offensive just to gay people. I'm talking about people in general. I'm trying to offend everyone across the board. I'm an equal opportunity asshole. I'm not sure if you've heard, but sex talk of any stripe can be fucking funny. People doing it wrong, people doing it way right. The weird sounds, embarrassing shit, goofy positions and situations, it can be hilarious. Gay, straight, whatever. We all fuck funny. I mean, by and large, uh, sex and everything, it's the same mechanics for all 
of the consenting age appropriate human beings doing the sexy. The chances that having someone fiddle around with whatever's between your legs and slash or inserting parts or body shaped objects into various orifices and giving them a jiggle and that act alone giving you sexual pleasure, well, the chances are really high of that happening. Okay? No matter how straight or gay by trinus you might be, it's probably going to feel good. I'm not even sure of all the nomenclature with the gay by straight. I'm, but I am pretty sure of the basic physiology involved, more or less, I think. So, hand jobs, blow jobs, ass stuff, or whatever feel, I guess, you know. Um, look, you're a pervert, just like everyone else. You silly, silly fucking pervert. Loosen up. No one here cares, okay? Everyone is capable of doing these things, not just certain folks or whatever, or them doing it isn't bad. Look, plenty of everybody gives, takes, and prefers it in all kinds of holes, both foreign, domestic, and abroad. That's, I mean, that would be foreign. Anyway, that's because uh, it's the same thing. That's probably the same thing. But you get my you get my drift. Just know that if I toss out a giggle line about banging somebody, it's probably involving something everyone can do. You not, nor are they not, um, as special as you think you are, they might. So, so just jam it in your ass. That went all over the place, didn't it? Hopefully you get what I meant. Seriously, though, if I do offend anyone, let me know. Um, I'd be happy to talk about it civilly, with civility. With, I legitimately believe that all humanity is equally eligible for being a punchline. The human condition, I've always firmly believed, is a very dark, dark comedy all around and should be enjoyed by all those suffering from it. May there be a day when we don't give so much of a shit about what other people are doing with their genitals and just hate people for legitimate reasons like having a fucking conversation on a speakerphone in public what the fuck is wrong with you or or loudly playing music while you're walking around shopping and shit fucking why no one likes your shitty taste in music and hearing it played loudly through a shitty cell phone it's not convincing anyone to get on board with it god damn it so in closing gay straight by Great. You're all aces of my book. Just be nice. Hopefully interesting and say excuse me from time to time. I was I was actually serious about that. Now, without further ado, Mr. Freddie Mercury. Or, as the book begins, the biography of this rock and roll legend's life. Um, we start with his birth. <laughs> Wait, no. No, we start with the birth of AIDS. Yes. Let's start with the birth of AIDS. The thing that fucking killed him. I wish I was joking. Oh. Uh, spoiler alert, one of, if not the greatest rock singer of all time, uh, been dead for about, oh, uh, 30 years, 30 years ago. If you missed the last 30 years, sorry, he, he's gone. So if you've been wondering why Freddie Mercury and Queen haven't been generating any new material, it's because, um, he's no longer on this plane of existence. He's, he's left this mortal coil shuffled off. Sorry to kill that dream for you. But uh, you, you can go ahead and get out of the line at the music store, many of which closed decades ago. There are no new tracks from Freddie and Queen dropping now 
or ever. So they start, uh, this book starts with the origin of the AIDS virus, which upon first thought is akin to beginning the story of the life of John F. Kennedy with how the metal was smelted to make the bullets that helped paint that 1961 convertible Lincoln Continental with his brains. That was graphic. I'm sorry. Uh, that doesn't mean to say I'm comparing Freddie Mercury, okay, of course, to JFK, which, I mean, I mean, you could if you were going to compare like fame and the amount uh, of people their dicks were in, which if that were the case, fame-wise, eh, I mean, seriously, it's hard to accurately quantify and gauge fame in such a way as to properly compare both types and amount of fame, persistence through history or time or whatever between two people. It's very hard to quantify fame like that overall. Um, who their dicks were in? Freddie won by a mile. Uh, that guy fucked a lot. Seriously. A lot. Still, to start a person's biography with the thing that ultimately kills the man, it's a little darkly twisted. Though, after some research and consideration, I've come to understand why. The authors felt that Freddie's biography might be a great way to kind of unfold a little history of the AIDS virus uh, in it to a seriously undereducated public. I understand the logic, and it seems to be coming from a good place. It's just a little morbid slapping the thing that killed the guy before the birth of the guy. By weaving a tale of how the AIDS virus uh, came to initially infect a hunter via a monkey bite in the Congolese jungle to spread around the globe and uh, eventually get Freddie Mercury, an international rock star, they, they've been able to convey an education on AIDS to a wider audience. I get it. The fewer ignorant people running amok, the better. Still, a little awkward in the execution. Uh, in the spirit of getting people to be a little less stupid, though, I'll, I will pass on some of the AIDS stuff to you. You know, the information, the AIDS information, not not the, you know, not the virus, not the virus. I mean, it's, we need to fuck. I mean, we didn't. You, I, we, I've gone too far. I'm sorry. Okay, so it's 1908, and a Bantu hunter is checking snare traps he's set. Catching prey is the name of the game here, and selling meat and fur up the river in the city of Leopoldville is the prize. The prize being money, and the money being the means to score some booty. Prostitute booty. With hopes of snagging some animals to ultimately turn into vagina rental, he happens upon a pretty pissed off monkey caught in one of his snares. The horny hunter, being anxious to murder the hell out of the monkey for his sweet, money-making meat, spears the monkey. Not before being bitten by it, though. It's a bad bite. It's a bad, bloody, gross, gross, bloody bite. The hunter, now more angry than horny, kills the fuck out of that monkey. He's satisfied that he's exacted the right amount of revenge for that bite. Unfortunately, the monkey's going to get the last laugh here. And by proxy, get the last laugh on all of humanity. Because he gave the hunter AIDS. Hunter one, monkey, 45.8 million and counting. Fucking monkeys, man. The moral of the story, of course, is monkeys are better left to their own devices. Otherwise, they'll give you AIDS because they hate people. That's nonsense, obviously. Maybe. I don't know. I don't hang around monkeys uh, often enough to know for sure. But still, the basic story is true. A hunter bit by an AIDS-infected monkey then goes into town to sell his wares. Um, and he uses the profit to buy some hooker wares and uh, unknowingly passes on the world's 
best reason besides pregnancy to never, ever have sex again. It's a great way to start a book about a beloved rock star, right? No? Ah, maybe you're just not a fan of AIDS is all. It's not for everybody. Now, let's talk about one of the many reasons, beyond the obvious, to hate the fuck out of the AIDS virus. One of the lives it cut short. Mr. Freddie Mercury. Freddie McMotherfucking Mercury was... I don't know why I did that. Uh, just my brain spits out things every once in a while. I'll start over. Freddie fucking fucking hope. Ah, why? All right. Freddie Mercury, born Farouk Balsara, entered the world on September 5th, 1946, which is the Parsi New Year's Day. What's Parsi? I'm glad you asked. Uh, it's a group of religious followers of the Iranian prophet Zoroaster. Parsis, meaning Persians. Uh, the Parsis emigrated to India from Iran. Iran? Is that right? Iran? Iran. They did that to avoid brutal religious persecution by the Muslims in the 8th century, and they settled predominantly in Bombay and towns and villages to the north of the city. That's a Parsi. The child of Parsi parents, Bami and Jur Balsara, he grew up tall and he grew up right with the Indiana boys on an Indiana night. Nope. That's a Tom Petty song. No, his cousin uh, described uh, little tiny Farouk, soon to be Freddie, uh, as such a small boy, a nice child. At age five, according to his mother, he was already showing an interest in music and performing. He used to love playing records all the time and then sing any sort of music, folk, classical, or Indian music. Uh, he would attend parties with his parents, and it became an accepted routine for young Farouk to sing. He was always eager to oblige, perhaps show off even, feeling proud at being able to make everyone feel happy through his singing, even at a young age. In 1952, his sister, Kashmira, was born. He was six when I was born, she said, so I only had a year of him. Yet, I was always aware of my proud older brother protecting me, she remembered. Why did she only recall a year? Because that was the time Farouk, a.k.a. past Freddy, that was when he was shipped off to an English-style boarding school in Pakagani, which was almost 3,000 miles away from Zanzibar, where his family lived. For the next few years, he would only see them for a month-long period each summer when he returned home. This, the book speculates by quoting several doctors throughout, fucked Freddy up. Bad. One person even saying it's tantamount to child abuse. On this particular bit, I would tend to agree. I mean... Really, being separated from your parents at that young an age is bound to do some damage. It was right around this point in the book, uh, by the way, that I, got a, that I got a weird vibe. Going to an all-boys school far away from your family doesn't um, are automatically spark uh, homosexuality uh, anything. There are plenty of boys that go to all-boys schools and are straight. Although, I mean, I, I suppose um, if you are gay... Uh, if you're a gay guy and you find yourself in the company of a lot of guys with whom uh, you got to know personally, I imagine the chances of you finding another gay kid uh, would go up more than in a crowd of mixed uh, male, female, whatevers, right? I mean, statistically, right? Uh, hell, uh, maybe he, he wasn't just into guys anyway, as his own history would later show. He got down with women too. The book doesn't entertain that possibility, really. Instead, choosing to say that Freddy was in the beginning of coming into sexual awareness, and the all-boys boarding school set him on the path to dude-banging. That, that seems like a lot of nonsense, but 
It's what they went with and later really tried to drill home. To be fair, Freddie wasn't very forthcoming. So, I mean, they, they can't speculate a lot. Uh, Freddie didn't talk about his childhood or boarding school, really, suggesting that he may not have had the best time during either. He was quoted as saying, have I got upper class parents who put a lot of money into me? Was I spoiled? No, my parents were very strict. I wasn't the only one. I've got a sister. I, I was at boarding school for nine years, so I didn't see my parents that often. That background helped me a lot because it taught me to fend for myself. When asked in an interview with NME about brutish behavior and homosexual goings-on, he said, it's stupid to say there's no such thing in boarding school. All the things they say about them are more or less true. All the bullying and everything else. He also quips about being considered the arch poof. Poof, in British slang, is an offensive term uh, for an effeminate guy or gay dude. Um, Arch being chief or principal. Uh, so basically he was saying the, uh, he was saying he was the chief prin- or principal effeminate slash gay kid. Anyway, regardless, Freddie rarely talked about his time at boarding school or his childhood in general, which probably means he had a pretty tough go of it, uh, with all the loneliness and, you know, being teased about his effeminate demeanor and his possible blossoming sexual feelings towards other boys. I mean, it was during his school days that Farouk Balsara became Freddy Bulsara. Freddy being an affectionate name given to him by teachers. He latched onto that pretty quick, uh, preferring to be called that instead of his real name. Freddy was increasingly attracted to subjects such as art, literature, and of course, music. He already knew about opera via his parents, but he soon developed a taste for that sweet, sweet Western pop, especially piano-based rock and roll. Once, when I think he was nine years old, his aunt remembered, Freddie used to come running up for breakfast, and the radio was on. And then, when the music was finished, he went, he went to the piano and played the tune. I thought, I must get him into some music lessons. He's got an ear for music. She convinced his parents to pay for private lessons. His mom made sure he stuck to them. In 1958, in 1958 Freddie formed his first band with friends from school. All fans of Elvis, God of Thunder, Presley. The band he uh, formed was dubbed The Hectics, and they cranked out basic rock tunes, but it didn't go anywhere. Freddie, who would later become one of the best rock and roll frontmen of all time, mainly stuck to the background while playing piano with some other kids singing. What the fuck, Fredro? Step up! Later, they changed their name to The Heretics. Kudos to Freddie for picking a badass band name back then. Fun fact... Freddie used to call everyone darling as a kid, uh, a thing that if you watch interviews of him on YouTube and, and stuff like that, he, he did that for, for the rest of his life. I mean, this means uh, even though he was bullied about such things, he didn't change it. That's some pretty awe-inspiring fucking confidence right there. He's, he's a pretty badass fella person. He's a pretty bad. He's just badass. After returning to Zanzibar, the Balsaras moved to the UK, London to be precise, in 1964. Freddie was almost 18 by now and wanted to go to art school. Was it because he liked to paint landscapes, wanted to study sculpture or or textiles while talking about the socio-political misgivings of neo-cubism in relation to illustrated self-truth and its commercial legitimacy in the art world? No. (laughs) No. 
the fuck would go to school for that? No, 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 no. He wanted to follow in the path of English pop stars. While in Zanzibar, he read in magazines that it was almost a requirement to go to art school if you wanted to be a pop star. He particularly wanted to go to Ealing Technical College and School of Art because Ronnie Wood, Roger Ruskin Spear, and Pete Townsend went there. Pete Townsend back again. Although Freddie didn't get in right away. He was still in London, baby. The Beatles, the Kinks, Pink Floyd, and the Rolling Stones were still local bands at the time. Freddie felt like he belonged here. Meanwhile, back on the AIDS front, AIDS for the longest time remained confined to the Republic of Congo. That is, that is, until everyone stepped in to rape the land of its ivory rubber and Leonardo DiCaprio's blood diamonds. The subsequent railway network they made to expedite the pillaging also helped the AIDS virus find new homes in prostitute hiring miners, migrant farmers, and more. They would then bring their deadly sex souvenir back home to unknowing girlfriends and wives and such. By the 1930s and early 50s, it had spread from its epicenter. (sighs) Fucking AIDS, man. By 1960, the virus had become exponential in West Africa and eventually leaped over to Haiti, although no one realized it, of course. Here is where AIDS threw me a curveball. Now that it had made its way to Haiti, it happened to be there just in time for a plasma shortage in the U.S. Plasma is the clear straw-colored liquid portion of blood that remains after red blood cells, white blood cells, platelets, and other cellular components are removed. It is the single largest component of human blood, comprising about 55%, and contains water, salts, enzymes, antibodies, and other proteins. Plasma's function in the body uh, serves as a transport medium for delivering nutrients to the cells of the uh, various organs of the body and for transporting waste products derived from cellular metabolism to the kidneys, liver, and lungs for excretion. This was in short supply in the U.S. as people needed it to inoculate themselves against hepatitis. Uh, America didn't have enough healthy donors, so naturally companies pop in to fill the void by paying poor people for their plasma to sell on to rich hospitals in America. blood bag ching Guess where those poor people were from? Yup. Haiti. A perfect brew of AIDS stew got a brewing. The combination of asymptomatic people infected with AIDS, blood inadvertently mixing in plasma genes, which uh, separates the plasma from the red blood cells, and then uh, injecting the infected blood back into people got the deadly virus a whole new set of the population to kill. Things were really starting to pick up for AIDS at this point. It was still undiscovered and was on the cusp of making its big break in America. Man, that's depressing. Freddie, on the other hand, was in a mixed state of depression and amazement. He'd made it to London and was barely able to enroll in the art school he wanted to go to and was chomping at the bit to get into a band to become a famous rock star already. He just had to overcome no one noticing him. Yeah, Freddie Mercury was a shy, effeminate kid. Everyone thought was nice, but that was it. Deep inside, he harbored a dark secret. Serial killer. He 
was the killer singer from Queen. Gunpowder, gelatine, dynamite with a laser beam, guaranteed to blow your mind anytime. Ah, Freddy, you'd smirk and sue the shit out of me. No, he wasn't a serial killer. He did desperately want to fit in uh, while dressing like ass, though. He dressed weirdly in drain pipe trousers that weren't quite long enough and middle-aged jackets that were slightly too small. I suppose he'd bought those clothes with him from Zanzibar or India. He seemed very gauche, but desperately wanted to fit in, recalled his friend Adrian Moorish. So, he looked like a goofy shit in slick back hair and shit clothes. Got it, Adrian, don't be a dick. Well, I mean, until you got to know him then, then, I mean, Freddie Mercury is basically just really shy. Regardless, uh, Freddie found a few local friends via school and also developed a fascination with the pop culture developing in 1960s Britain at the time. He took a special liking to Jimi Hendrix, especially. Following him from gig to gig during his early days in London, he saw him 14 times, including nine nights in a row at pubs all around London. How fucking crazy is that? Freddie was heavily inspired by Hendrix's style, showmanship, and overall demeanor. Although it's hard to discern readily, uh, Mercury's stage presence and theatrics were influenced by Jimmy. Freddie would later say he didn't have to force anything. He'd just make an entrance and the whole place would be on fire. He was living out everything I wanted to be. Learning that Freddie Mercury was a Hendrix groupie blew my mind. Imagine going back in time and being in a room with young, pre-world-famous Jimi Hendrix tearing up a London club while Freddie Mercury was also in the room, being all fanboy and shit. I have a hard time trying to figure out which pet to sacrifice first to make that kind of time travel happen. Sure, sure, they they have their good qualities, but, I mean, we're talking Freddie and Jimmy here. Jimmy and Freddie! Ah, guy can dream. So, Freddie, anxious to get into a band, was largely relegated to watching other people join bands while just missing his break and, you know, barely... Anyway, in between 1967 and 68, he was asked to leave art school because he was too busy following Jimmy fucking Hendrix around. God damn it, Jimmy. Did you have to be so charismatic? You were fucking up poor Freddie's life. Think, Jimmy, think. Luckily for Jimmy's conscience, Freddie convinced the principal to let him switch fields of study instead. Dodged a guilt bullet, Jimmy Hendrix. Don't let it come that close again. Damn it, Jimmy. Damn it. It was in this new course of study that Freddie met somebody that liked music as much as he did. His name? Tim Stoffel. I bet you thought it was going to be uh, Brian May, Roger Taylor, or uh, John Deacon, didn't you? Well, too bad. It wasn't them. It was Tim. What's wrong with Tim? Um, he's a good guy. Um, why do you hate Tim so much? He t- Tim's cool. He played bass and harmonica. I mean, more importantly, um, harmonica. So, you know, while playing it for a local band, uh, harmonica that is, two people in the audience saw him and asked him to join their band. Those guys? Brian May and some other fucking guy that no one cares about. But, you know, Brian May, he's, he's a big deal. So Freddie knew Tim. Tim knew Brian. Brian knew Sharon. Sharon got Sharishi with Sharon. Sharon's outlook on the topic of disease. Mikey had a facial scar and Bobby was a racist. They were all in love and dying. They were doing it in Texas. 
damn it, that's a good song. If you don't know what that song is, you should uh, look it up. It's great. Uh, it's it's great. It's Pepper by uh, the Butthole Surfers. Fantastic. Why am I crapping out so many lyrics today? I'm overworked. Damn it. Stay on topic, Elton. Um, fine. Okay, I will. <laughs> Sorry for that multiple personality moment. Back to Freddie not being in a band, because that hasn't happened yet. It will soon, I promise, because Tim, Brian May, and that guy no one cares about, they formed a band, and then it broke up. Brian left because he wanted to become a physicist. Yet, yet he kept him in mind because the music itch doesn't just go away when you study physics. No matter what physicists tell you, it gnaws at you like a crack addiction, like a crack addiction worse than physics. It just gnaws and gnaws until one day you're doing music in the parking lot of the Large Hadron Collider in Switzerland. And that's how you get addicted to music, folks. Through physics. Who knew? It's a shame. What am I talking about again? Oh, yeah. Brian wanted to do music, so he contacted Tim. Then they got together to jam. Tim would play bass and sing while Brian May played guitar. Yet still, they were one guy short from forming the trio to murder all rock and roll trios. They needed a drummer. And wouldn't you know it? Fuck if they could find one. Stupid rare bird drummers, they're scarce. So, they did what any reasonable drummerless band would do. They put up flyers. People called. Uh, after getting those flyers, sure, sure they did. But none none were up to Tim and, and May's lofty drum standards. The people that came in, they were less rare birds. The less rare birds known as shitty drummers. Meanwhile... In a different part of town, I assume, a kid that didn't play drums uh, named Les Brown saw the ad in the student union and brought it back to his flat, a.k.a. apartment. Why? Why would he just grab a random flyer? He's not a drummer. Well, despite him not being a drummer himself, his roommate, Roger Mechanophilic Taylor, was. Boom! The Voltron that is Queen has almost formed, folks. Knowing what two of the three would later become, they decided to name the band something so epic as to fully carry the weight of the bombastic future they felt lay before them. It had to be formidable, heavy, and rock and roll as fuck. What did they settle on? Smile. Yep. They named their band Smile. God. Fucking. The bad band names are... I'm just peppered throughout this book, man. Fucking smile. <sighs> the three of them stayed in school. Brian being a physicist, Roger starting as a dentist, then switching to biologist. Um, you know, because uh, they're ridiculously smart. And Tim, who cares? He's some guy they knew that would soon know two famous people. Meanwhile, Freddie wants to be in a band, but somehow ends up just being a band friend. Uh, a friend of the band that goes, you know, to all their shows and hangs out with them afterward. I mean, what the fuck? It just so happened that all the bands he buddied up to were filled out. And, uh, you know, he's just waiting for his shot. Plus, on top of that, he's the quiet, campy, who? Freddie? A singer? Have you seen how he dresses? He's that kid. So while Freddie, uh, biding his time, he befriends Roger via Tim. Good old Tim. Uh, Freddie um, became a hanger-on of Smile. 
He even attended their first show, which was uh, as a supporting act for Pink Floyd. Motherfucker. Imagine time traveling to that show. You're in a room watching two future members of Queen open up for Sid Barrett's Pink Floyd. The only problem you'd have is the people in the room asking you if you've shit your pants. And you have. Freddie followed Smile and other local acts around waiting for his chance. His prospects didn't look promising. Until finally he caught a break. A band out of Liverpool called Ibex. Which is one of the worst band names we've ever heard. Seriously, it ranks right up there with Smile and uh, the Flying Burrito Brothers, Hoobastank, and the Crickets. Yeah, you heard me. You heard me right. Maybe shit was different in the Crickets day, but uh, to name your band Crickets, I mean, you ought as well call yourselves the the Stay Home Because We're Fucking Boring band. <sighs> I digress. Despite really wanting to sing for Smile, which uh, now held second place um, as the worst band name, uh, Freddie settled for Ibex uh, and turned some shit out. Well, kind of. As it would happen, Freddie became a rudimentary version of the Freddie Mercury we all know and love. Uh, when he hit the stage with Ibex, he did all the prancing, the strutting and whatnot. That was all there, with few exceptions. He sang slightly sharp back then because... Uh, you know, he'd get overexcited. And, uh, he wanted to do good and all that, so he just did too much, uh, which is understandable. And an even more uh, important aspect of his stage persona came uh, from his time with Ibex. The, uh, the half-microphone stand thing. Apparently, he was just swinging the microphone stand around, and the, the bottom fell off, and he couldn't get it back on because, you know, they didn't have road managers or, or roadies to fix that shit back then. And, you know, they're, they're just a poor band anyway. Uh, poor local band. So... So he just went with it. He just went with the top half and made the most of it. It was during this time that Freddie was dipping his wick with the ladies. Yeah, because when it came to ass, Freddie narrowed his liking down to anyone and any ol'. As in, any ol' ass will do. Okay, maybe not an old ass. But, I mean, he would get down with women, too. He was, he was dating a girl named Rosemary Pearson, but... Eventually, she ended it. She said they just weren't right for each other. About the same time, his run with Ibex, uh, who had by this time changed her name to Wreckage, uh, that shit came to an end. So, he joined up with a different band and tried his damnedest to take that band over and reshape it into what he wanted. Well, the band's name? Um, Sour Milk Sea. Fuck it. Means uh, smile has to move down to what third or fourth on the worst name for a band list. Uh, I, I lost track. It's a shitty list. Meanwhile, smile was struggling. They had had some success, um, and they were signed to a label, and and they popped out a single which went nowhere, and so they were dropped by the record company. To make matters worse, their bass player slash vocalist Tim said, "Fuck this smile bullshit." Stuff this fucking band. I'm out. That That's literally what he said in my head because I made it up. He did split, though, which left Smile without a singer. And if you don't see what's about to happen, you may want to look into slapping your primary school teachers for not teaching you how to draw conclusions. We wondered if we should give up, remembers Brian May, before adding, but then young Freddie Bolsara arrived on the scene. And said, 
Anyway, you know. Of course, he didn't do that. He'd do that later. You know, way better than I ever could. So, soon after he got into the band, he suggested they change the name from Shit-Assed Smile to Pimp-Assed Queen. It was a name he had been wanting to use for a while. He mentioned the name to two sisters he was traveling with back in Cornwall in 1970. What do you think of the name Queen? He asked, and they thought it was hilarious laughing at the thought of the gay connotation. Freddie persuaded them with talk of the name sounding regal. At that point, he'd already started working on the crest and the logo. Roger and Brian uh, didn't, didn't like the name initially, but they got used to it. Now, for Freddie Mercury becoming Mercury Freddie, and no longer Balsara Freddie, Brian May remembers. He wrote a song for the first album called My Fairy King, and in it, there's a line that goes, Oh, Mother Mercury. Mother Mercury, look what they've done to me. I cannot run, I cannot hide. Freddie told Brian, Well, I'm going to become Mercury, because the mother in this song is my Mercury, and so I'm going to become Mercury. And we all went, is he mad? You know, but but again, he was serious, and he changed his name to Freddie Mercury. So there you have it. Freddie Mercury became Freddie Mercury because of a lyric he, Freddie Mercury, he himself, made up. What. The. Fuck. Oi. Queen, at the time, was almost a fully formed Voltron of campy, choir-like, harmonic, glam rock, proto-metal. All it needed was a deacon. A big, fat deacon. Well, okay, maybe not big and fat. He, I mean, he was an average build. I mean, if you look him up, I, I, I guess slender, maybe? Yeah, slender, not pudgy. <laughs> not pudgy. I mean, I'm getting pudgy. I get this, I got this s'more ice cream recently. It's kind of it's kind of taking me over. It's two sections of chocolate divided divided by a, a vanilla graham cracker flavor in the middle. It's it's tremendous. Uh, it's uh, I can't recommend it enough. It's a uh, uh, <clears throat> sorry. They needed a good bass player. Unfortunately, they hadn't run into him yet. Instead, they went through a slew of bass players uh, that were either quitters. Or sucked up too much of the spotlight. No one takes Freddy's spotlight. He'll cut a motherfucker. While in school, uh, to get a degree in electronics, John Deacon, another ridiculously smart musician, became available. Apparently, he had met Brian and Roger before, and when the time came for them to replace their limelight-hogging bastard of a bassist, they had John Deacon audition. They thought he was great. He was in, and the sky split with a bolt of lightning causing a thunder so tremendous it made the earth quake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, for the Queen Alliance had now fully formed and would remain so for the next twenty-plus years. Amen. Later, after a few gigs with Freddie doing his half-mic struts and whipping his hair back and forth, their audience grew. And then, then, Neptune Productions came a-callin', 
and then nothing. Fucking hot and cold production companies, man. Shit or get off the pot when you're dealing with the likes of Queen. Ah, but then luck came their way when a friend who was wanting to test out a new state-of-the-art recording studio came along and, and asked them, Hey, hey, do you want to be the guinea pigs? You know, to help me work out the kinks in this studio before I pass, you know, it's before we start working on real shit. Um, you know, for your trouble, uh, give you, you'll get a professional quality demo out of the deal. You know, this was, this is when people found out after they became the guinea pigs, this was when people found out the perfectionist side of the band was a little much. They were very fussy. Producer slash engineer Lewis Austin recalled. Their songs were done one by one. They would carry on until they thought it was right. Sometimes took a very long time. But they put up with so much shit, too. I mean, during that time. Translation, Queen were perfectionist bitches. No, no, no. Okay, no. That's harsh. They, they just wanted things right. But, but that can be read as finicky by regular non-genius you know, musician. T- they were pff, fucking perfectionists. Uh, they managed to record five songs of which Freddie wrote three. The song Liar, Jesus, and Great King Rat. It was around this time they discussed how they would be credited for their songwriting. The rule they made was the person who wrote the words has effectively written the song. And they stuck with that until the last two albums when they decided to share credit, no matter who wrote what. That's a funky-ass rule, but eh, I mean... I'm not a hit-generating group from the 70s. What do I know? Now, despite the professional demo, no one would commit to signing them. And it was during this will-they-won't-they period that Queen did some boss-level shit. A record company called Charisma Records wanted to sign them for £23,000. That's roughly £230,000 in today's money. And they turned it down. Four broke-assed, nobody musicians told... 23,000 pounds to fuck itself. The reason they gave? They didn't want to be made second fiddle to the band. Genesis. I can't dance. I can't talk. Only thing about me is the way that I walk. I can't dance. I can't sing. I'm just standing here selling everything. If you don't know who Genesis is, you should go and look them up. Although the version of Genesis at the time was fronted by Peter Sledgehammer Gabriel, sporting a rather unfortunate looking haircut that oddly never caught on. A reverse mohawk? I don't even know what you call it. Um, no, thank you. <laughs> I like, uh, I like uh, for women to talk to me. And that brings me to the unfortunate task of telling you that this episode will be part one of two. I didn't think it would be, but here we are. While working this up, it got really long, and I thought maybe it would be nice to split it uh, right about here. To go from the birth of Freddy to the birth of Queen in reverse to the next part. Nifty, huh? But there's so much more. Freddie Mercury, as it would happen, uh, was a pretty interesting son of a bitch. He likes cats a lot, Japanese art a lot, dick a lot, and vagina a lot, though... Uh, doesn't like vagina as much as he likes dick. That dwarf party uh, I mentioned at the beginning, that's in part two. But as an added bonus, here's a preview of the kind of stuff that 
will be in the second half. 1983, Michael Jackson. Freddie Mercury and Michael Jackson wrote songs together. I had always heard about this, but never knew the details. Uh, okay, before I go on, I'll toss in an obligatory joke about Michael Jackson and Freddie Mercury uh, that I found on the internet. Okay, ready? Okay, get your game face on. This one is, uh, it's something. Why aren't Michael Jackson and Freddie Mercury any good at playing chess? Because they're dead. Because they're dead. Freddie and Michael had known and respected each other for a while. It was Michael who suggested Another One Bites the Dust be released as a single. So when you're making your list of things to be grateful to Michael Jackson for, um, you should probably make that the only one because uh, I'm not sure. Uh, eh. Michael would catch Queen shows all the time. Freddie remarked, we were always interested in each other's styles. I would regularly play him the new Queen album uh, when it was cut, and he would play me his stuff. We kept saying, why don't we do something together? So they did. Yeah, they collaborated. Jackson invited Fredro to his house, which included a recording studio. They worked on three different songs, Victory, State of Shock, and Freddie's own composition, there must be more to life than this. They only had a few hours and no session musicians, so Freddie played the piano while Michael made use of whatever was laying around uh, to add a beat. Which, being Michael, meant his meat. Sorry, it's a bad joke. Though, though he did just find whatever to make a beat. That part was true. Freddie took off at around 6 that night, uh, pretty satisfied with what they'd been working on and Unfortunately, any plans they had to reconvene and hammer the rest of that shit out never happened. Their schedules never lined up or whatever. So I guess we'll never get that album, which is a damn shame. You can find versions of State of Shock and There Must Be More to Life Than This on YouTube. Uh, they turned out pretty good. I can't vouch for their authenticity, but they seem pretty legit. Um, search. Search already. I'll wait. <sighs> I'm kidding. You could pause anyway so join me for the second part of somebody to love the life death and legacy of freddie mercury it's a weirdly sad partly insane journey with a lot of drugs and ass so so much ass thank you for listening delton reads a book a week i hope you enjoyed this episode if you did, consider contributing via this podcast, Anchor.fm page and or Patreon and get bonus content and such. And be sure to follow the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, all of, you know, wherever. Just search for Elton Reads a Book a Week. It'll pop up. And you can also email me at eltonreadsabookaweek at gmail.com. That's all one word at gmail.com. That's cool, too. You can email me there. I'll answer you. Um, you can also do me a huge favor and read a book this week. Start one. Just start one. Finish one. Get one. All of the above. Huh? Don't let them die out. Thanks again. Bye. Bye.